Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 19. If you don't, the scripture text is in your bulletin, along with a place to be able to take notes. The scripture is on page 7 in your bulletin. We're going to be looking in this final, this final message in the series of Heaven at Work. We're going to be looking at restoring heaven at work. So let me uh, give ear now as I read Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is God's word. Well, I pulled out this quote from a movie from 1976. The movie was Taxi Driver. I didn't see the movie, but, uh, but actor Peter Boyle in it, he's a taxi driver. He makes this profound statement about work. Okay, this is what he says about work. He says, look at it this way. A man takes a job, you know, and that job, that becomes what he is. You know, you do a thing and that's what you are. Like, I've been a cabbie for 13 years. I still don't own my cab. You know why? Because I don't want to. That must be what I want, to be on the night shift driving somebody else's cab. You understand? I mean, you get a job, you become the job. It's interesting, isn't it? You get a job, you become the job. From his perspective, he's depressed. Right? He's not happy about this. And I think all of us feel this way to some measure, right? Especially when the work that we do day in and day out, week in and week out, if we don't enjoy our work, if it's, a, if it's draining for us, it has a profoundly shaping influence on us. And we are all a product of what we do most. And as we've seen this month, what we do more than anything else is work. So we become what we do. And if we don't like what we do, that reality is frustrating. It's frustrating. But we've been looking at work differently this month. Right? We have this whole sermon series that's been designed to reshape how we think about work. We've been looking and seeing how our work actually imitates God. Right? Our work images God. And this, this reality in addition to all the stuff we've talked about already, this makes work an amazing opportunity. Because what if the job that you became 
was a job that God does. What if in your job, the thing that you do, the thing that you're becoming, actually makes you imitate an image and become more like God? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, that's what we're looking at. That's what we've been saying all this time. And Peter Boyle profoundly puts it, that the job that you have, you become. This makes our work an opportunity. An opportunity not just to know God better, but to even imitate him more effectively. And so let's, let's just ask real quick. I mean, this is the last sermon in the series. How have things gone for you this last month? How are, how are you doing with work? Have things changed? Has your thinking been changed? Have you seen differences in your job? I mean, we're aiming for changed lives. Right? How has it been for you this month? I mean, I know we've been trying to make, get promotions, right? Move up the integration, uh, the, the, the corporate or the, the company of integrating faith and work. We've been trying to move up in our understanding um, and integrating faith and work more closely. And we've seen over the last few weeks that work and companies image God. And God does three main things in the world. He creates, he maintains, and he restores. As creator, he makes things that are very good. And so we talked about work and companies that make things that are very good. He also keeps things running right as the maintainer. We talked about companies and jobs that keep things running right. Well, today we're going to see how work images God as restorer. And so the big idea for today is as restorer, God fixes the things in life that are broken. Okay, God fixes the things in life that are broken. And in our text, Jesus shows us how he restores someone with amazing effects. Okay, we have three points in the outline. They're kind of longer points, so I'm going to wait and give them to you in the middle of the sermon. Let me just give you the first point that you can write down now. The first point that we're going to see in Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus is that frustration with work leads you to seek satisfaction elsewhere. Okay? Frustration with work leads you to seek satisfaction elsewhere. And as we start, let me remind you again, if you're not employed, if you don't have a job, if you're unemployed, if you are retired or an unpaid volunteer, remember that when we talk about work, work is just having impact. It's making a difference in any part of life, including influencing other people. And so you don't have to have a job to be able to image God in these ways, especially in this area of fixing the things that are broken. So please, if you don't have a job, don't tune out. Don't tune out. This is for all of us. Okay, the setting of our story really does, it speaks volumes. In two verses, we get so much information. We see that what we're looking at here is is really bad work to start with. We've got this guy, Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, verse 2 tells us. Now, this is bad news, right? To be a tax collector back then uh, was not a good thing, right? Tax collectors were the very bottom of the, the bottom of the food chain. I mean, the worst of the worst. To be a tax collector was to have probably the worst work you could possibly have because back then, to be a tax collector, you actually had to buy a franchise, and you bought the franchise from the Roman government, which in most people's minds already made you a traitor. You'd sold out to the man, right? You were now serving Rome. And basically what would happen is you would be responsible for paying Rome a certain amount, and that would be what they would collect. 
And Rome said, if you, if you do this and give us this much, you can collect anything, any amount you want, as long as you pay us what we tell you to pay us. And so there was no limit to what these tax collectors could charge people. And there were certain taxes that, that were parceled out that were legitimate taxes that Rome collected. But then these tax collectors would charge for everything else, anything they could dream of, any way. And they also had soldiers who would enforce their tax collecting. And so what happened was these people just became incredibly corrupt. There was a huge amount of temptation to take a little bit more, to invent a new tax because you needed to add on to your house, right? Or you needed to get you know, a new horse you know, or you needed to buy you know, a few more slaves. And so people were constantly tempted to basically to fleece the people, to steal from them. And what we find out with Zacchaeus is that Zacchaeus had given in to that temptation. We find out that this isn't just bad work, but this is a bad man because Zacchaeus was rich. The end of verse 2. Now, this isn't saying that to be rich is to be bad. Okay, but what we see here is that if you were a tax collector and you were rich, then you were fleecing the people. You were robbing people. You were stealing from them. And what's worse, beyond just the corruption, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. So that means that not only was Zacchaeus guilty for this, but he had a bunch of underlings. It was like a pyramid scheme, really. He, and he was on the top of this pyramid leading this group of tax collectors and skimming stuff off the top of everybody. And he had become incredibly wealthy. So we see bad work. We see a bad man. He's also in a bad city. Jericho was actually one of three central tax collecting cities in Israel. Okay, so this was one of three cities where all the, all the regional taxes were collected. Jericho, you know, if you remember uh, stories from Sunday school, or if you read the Old Testament, Jericho was a city that was early destroyed by God for its wickedness. And Joshua even pronounced a curse when it was destroyed, who said anybody who rebuilds this city will be cursed, them and their family. Okay, and so we see this. I mean, the, the story is laid out for us. It's almost like, you know, one of the old Western movies where the guy walks in with a black hat into the saloon, you know that things are not, this isn't a good guy, okay? And so your expectation is, oh, my goodness, we're in Jericho. We're dealing with a chief tax collector who's wealthy. Boy, this isn't good. And for our work perspective, you see, not only did Zacchaeus have a lot of money, but he also had a lot of power. He had a lot of power because he was under, the, he had control of all these things. What's interesting, though, is he asked the question, was he happy? The answer is no. He wasn't happy. Why? Well, he seems to be searching in this text. He's looking for something more. You know, for all of his money, for all of his power, I mean, we could say he didn't have anybody to share it with. For a tax collector, he had no friends. He was ostracized in the community. He wasn't even allowed in, 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 the, in the synagogues. The Jews at the time considered tax collectors to be unclean, religiously unclean. So not only were they the off-scouring of the world, the most disreputable and degrading people, but they were also religiously unclean, which meant if you were to touch them, you would become unclean. And so, I mean, this caused me to think, well, how many of us feel like we're living or working in some environment that's similar to this? 
Now, how many of you feel like you have bad work, you know, that you're working in a corrupt industry, or you, have, or you see the corruption in your company, you know, or you feel the constant temptation to be making decisions to pad your own pockets you know, or to, to cheat or to get ahead in, in ways that, that aren't honest. Zacchaeus knew that something was missing in his life. He had done all of this, and there was something missing. Is there something missing for you? I mean, do you have this sense that there's something, there's got to be something more to life, that work hasn't actually delivered on the promise to make you happy, that the money hasn't actually fixed the problem, if it just made them worse? Well, Zacchaeus, in verse 3, it says, He's now seeking Jesus. He's seeking to see who Jesus was. He's wondering if maybe Jesus can help. In a sense, we could say he sought satisfaction in his work. He sought it through money. He sought it through control. None of that stuff has satisfied him. None of that stuff has brought him anything but frustration. And so his frustration with his work has led him to seek satisfaction elsewhere. And he comes running for Jesus. He comes seeking him. Now, the text is kind of funny. He's got a problem. He's got a problem because he shows up and he finds he can't even get close to Jesus. Right? These crowds are too thick and poor Zacchaeus is too short. Right? He's a short guy. And this reminded me last year, um, you know, the Buick Open was at Torrey Pines and Tiger Woods and Rocco Mediate had this amazing, well, somebody gave me a ticket. So I got to go. And I was so excited because I was thinking, man, I can't wait. I'll spend five hours, you know, following Tiger Woods along the, you know, along this golf course, watching him play. And I'll be able to see him up close, you know, and I'm thinking this is going to be great. Well, 25,000 other people had the same idea, (laughs) you know, so I show up and I mean, you can't even get close to the guy. There's no way you can even get close to him. You're kind of watching him and people are standing on tiptoes. And I mean, at one point, at one point, I actually was standing on top of a golf cart just to be able to try to get an unblocked view of him from like 40 or 50 feet away. You know, and I mean, it wasn't that odd because there were 13 other people standing on the golf cart with me. Okay, we were all there. I mean, you can imagine this is a golf cart without the thing on top. So we're standing on this and some of us are on the hood, some of us in the back. And it was kind of a neat moment, like almost a community moment. We were all kind of holding each other on. You know, it was like we're, we didn't know each other. And here we are all helping each other stay on this so we can get a look at Tiger Woods. You know, but there was just, there was no way that, that we could see him. And Zacchaeus had the same problem. He was thinking, wait, finally, Jesus, finally, maybe he can give me the satisfaction I need. Maybe he has the answer. And like right in the middle of the story, we find he's got this problem. He can't get to Jesus. Jesus is going to go walking on by. What does he do? Well, Zacchaeus was determined. He couldn't see over the crowd, couldn't see through the crowd, so he runs ahead of the crowd, and he finds a tree to climb. And you have to understand, this would have been an absolutely humiliating thing for a grown man to do. Okay? I mean, I didn't feel bad sitting on the golf cart, because it's Tiger Woods, you know. But, um, but back in that culture, I mean, even to run back in that culture was a sign of, that you weren't very sophisticated or you weren't very important. So this guy runs ahead. Zacchaeus runs ahead, climbs in this tree, embarrasses himself. Here is the chief tax collector in Jericho, right? One of three people, right, in Israel. And he's sitting in a tree hoping to catch Jesus' eye. 
And I just think, wow, you know, how, how much are we really seeking Jesus? You know, some of us say we want him, but how much are we really, I mean, how far are we really willing to go to, to, to seek Jesus? Zacchaeus is an example to us. There he is up in a tree hoping to see Jesus. I got to ask, maybe, you know, you're here today. Are you hoping to see Jesus? I mean, that's why you're here. And I'm not just talking about people who aren't Christians yet, but are there things in your life where you need an answer from Jesus? You need to see Jesus. You need him to come and to meet with you. You're hoping to find out more about who Jesus is so that you can apply that to something that's going on in your life. Is that where you are today? I mean, if you are, then you're right with Zacchaeus sitting up in that tree. That's a good place to be because the second point in our outline point number two is that our search for satisfaction can bring us face to face with Jesus. Okay. Our search for satisfaction can bring us face to face with Jesus. Zacchaeus is frustrated with his work. He seeks out Jesus and we see that it brings him face to face. Think about Jesus here into the worst city. Jericho, into the worst industry, right? The tax collecting industry, into the worst job, the chief tax collector, to the worst person, Zacchaeus. Jesus comes. Think about that. Jesus comes into the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. He goes into the darkness. He goes into the corruption. He goes in to meet the people who are living and working in this reality. And Jesus comes seeking. He comes seeking. Verse 5. Zacchaeus has gone through all this effort to seek Jesus, right? And what we find out that Jesus was actually seeking him. Jesus comes to him in verse 5. He comes to the place. He looks up and said to Zacchaeus. He was looking for him. Isn't that amazing? This is good news. This is good news. You know what? If you're here today, Christian or non, if you're here today seeking Jesus, he's already seeking you. If you need an answer, if you need help, if you need grace, if you need strength, if you need power, if you need forgiveness, Jesus is seeking to give it to you. Verse 10 tells us as well, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost. He's looking for you. And it's not just that he's looking for you. He wants to spend time with you. He doesn't just have a conversation with Zacchaeus. He says, come down, for I must stay at your house today. That means spend the night. That's just the phrase he used. It means spend the night. And so Jesus wants to spend time with us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've been doing, no matter what our profession is, no matter what we've done that's been questionable or disreputable or sinful or evil, no matter who we are, if you're seeking answers, Jesus is seeking you. And as Jesus says, Zacchaeus, it's as though he's saying your name. 
right now. Jesus is coming to you through his word, by the power of his spirit, because he wants to bless you. Now, this gets everybody upset. Verse 7. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, this isn't just a report of Zacchaeus' moral condition. Okay, there was actually there was a technical term. You called somebody a sinner when they were religiously unclean. Okay? When they were unclean that meant that anyone like i said before anyone who touched you also became unclean your house would have been defiled while you were unclean and so what we see here we see a picture of the gospel because jesus the clean one jesus the one who was undefiled jesus is one who never did anything wrong jesus who came not for power or for riches but who came to serve and to give his life away. Jesus, the clean one, is willing to go into the house of the unclean one. When the clean and unclean come together, we get to see a picture of the gospel. It's really clear in the Old Testament what happens when someone who's clean comes into contact with someone who's unclean. You end up with two unclean people. But two things happen here uh, in this encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus. First, Zacchaeus comes out transformed. And we're going to see that in the next point. Zacchaeus comes out clean, we could say. Maybe not religiously clean, according to the, the folks who are, uh, who are keeping track of that stuff. But he comes out transformed. And then the second thing is that Jesus comes out defiled. Jesus comes out defiled. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus comes out knowing that he now has to pay the price for everything Zacchaeus has done. If Zacchaeus is going to go free, Jesus will have to take his punishment. We talk about a lot. uh, We talk about a vision to see things restored. We talk about wanting to see renewal and restoration and redemption happen in our city, in our church, in our world. But we don't like to talk about the price that has to be paid. And this this price, obviously, it points us to Jesus. But the price that's going to have to be paid to see San Diego restored... is going to come out of all of us, too. I mean, we can't die for sins, but it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take energy. It's going to take sweat. It's going to take tears. It's going to take pain. To see the restoration of a city is going to calls for incredible sacrifice. It calls us to pay amazing prices. And we can do this because of Jesus. Because Jesus, this is why he came. He came to take on our sins. He came to take on our uncleanness. The things that alienate us from others. The things that ostracize us. He takes the brokenness of our work. The brokenness of our world. And he dies for them. And that's how he sets us free. 
it comes at a price. The amazing news of the gospel is that we don't have to pay it. But this is why Jesus came. Verse 10, he came to seek and to save the lost. And so this brings us to our third point. Third point, that Jesus restores us and our work. Okay, Jesus restores, through his work, Jesus restores us and our work. Zacchaeus receives Jesus joyfully, verse 6. And then he makes this amazing declaration in verse 8. Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What's going on here? Well, there's two things that are happening. Conviction and freedom. And this is what happens when someone comes to know Jesus. This is what happens when somebody lets go of things and enters into a deeper relationship with Jesus. There's conviction. Zacchaeus feels awful. He feels guilty over the ways that he's acted, the ways he's cheated and stolen from people. And he wants to do everything he can to make it right. And he also experiences this freedom. He no longer has to depend on money. He's been set free. He doesn't need to be controlling environments or controlling other people. He's got true joy and true freedom in knowing Jesus. Being forgiven, being at peace with God. He doesn't need the money anymore. This is why we say that radical generosity, radical generosity comes when you've been gripped by the gospel. When you've been gripped by the gospel. And this fourfold payback, it's interesting. There's a few places in the Old Testament that talks about the penalty for, for stealing. Okay, Leviticus 6 says that there are times when the restitution needs to be 120%. You pay back what you stole plus 20%. In Exodus 22, there's, a, there's times when then, uh, the restitution is 200%. And then there's also times in Exodus 22 where restitution is 400%. And so what we see here with Jesus, with Zacchaeus, he's saying that he wants to pay back the maximum amount prescribed by the law. Zacchaeus, in this transformation of his heart, he doesn't turn around and say, okay, now, about all that stuff I did, um, how, how much do I have to give back now? Like, do I, do I really have to, how much do I have to do? Uh, I mean, he's not asking that. He's saying, look, Jesus, I'm in. I'm in. You have given me your own life. You, you've come to save me. You're giving yourself for me. I'm in for maximum obedience. Whatever the law says, I will pay back the highest amount that the law requires. That's a heart that's been gripped by grace. A heart that says, God, how could I not do everything for you? How could I not do anything that you want from me after seeing what you have done? In Jesus. That's Zacchaeus. So the maximum obedience and all of that on top of him giving half of everything he owns to the poor. Boy, I mean, I, I read one preacher this week on this text who said, how long does it take for the transformation to occur in the life of a Christian? <laughs> it's immediate. When you commit yourself to Jesus, when you say, Jesus, you are now Lord, everything changes. Now, there are things that will take time, but your whole attitude, your whole heart, it it, it radically changes. 
And so we should expect a transformation of our own lives as we commit ourselves to Jesus as our Lord. And what we see here is that this isn't just the redemption of Zacchaeus' soul. It's not just the restoration of his heart. It's the restoration of his work, of his work. Here's a quote by John Schneider, who wrote a book called The Good of Affluence. He says this about this story. He said, in this story, there's something more, something greater even than just the salvation of a wretched man, Zacchaeus. This is the redemption of the world, the world of culture, including its morally questionable economic forms. For if a chief tax collector working under the social economy of Herod and Caesar, given what that meant to the Jewish religion, if he can nonetheless be a son of Abraham, then surely hope for all walks of economic life exists in our time. In this story, it's not about a man who's saved from the economics of the world or from his job, but that the world is redeemed in and through the salvation and the new work of the new man. Do you understand that? That what Zacchaeus does, his heart doesn't just change, but this radically changes how he does his work. His whole business is going to be radically changed. It has to. He can't give away half of his stuff and 400% restitution everybody he's stolen from and then go back to business as usual. He'll never do his work the same way again. It's no wonder Jesus said today salvation has come to this house. And it's interesting, too, because tax collectors, he's not the only tax collector who comes to Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 3, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, they come, the tax collectors come to John the Baptist, and they say, um, so what are we supposed to do, John? We want to be baptized. What are we supposed to do? What are the fruits that keep with following, with following your message? And here's what John the Baptist says. He says, tax collectors also came to be baptized to, to John. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Here's what John the Baptist says. Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. What does John the Baptist not say? Yes. Yes. He doesn't say, oh, you're going to have to find a new profession. He tells them how they can redeem and restore the profession of being a tax collector. He shows them how they can tax collect to the glory of God. He shows them how they can honor God, how they can image God in the way they do their work. And this is, this is what we've been talking about in terms of that fifth level of integrating your faith and work, that level where you become a redeemer where you become someone who is restoring your job, your profession, or your industry. You know, it's inter- you can imagine that initially the idea that Jesus would send a tax collector back into his tax collecting profession would have probably gotten Jesus a lot of flack. I mean, the fact that he went and stayed with him, you know, got him flack. So to think, I'm sure there are people going, so Zacchaeus has this thing with Jesus. Well, clearly he's going to go do something. What? He's still, a ta- he's still the chief tax collector? Are you... What? How did, you know, you can imagine that that would have really irritated people and probably gotten the church in a lot of trouble too, where they probably fell out of favor with people because, oh, you know what? Tax collectors go to that church (laughs) and they stay tax collectors. But then think about this. Then 
when tax time comes around, what if the tax collectors who were following Jesus weren't fleecing people, weren't robbing them, weren't stealing them, weren't showing up with a bunch of toughs who were going to break your thumbs if you don't give them what they want? What if these Christian tax collectors were actually living out this redemption? Then they actually become pretty popular. My guess is that Zacchaeus and, and, and the folks who took John the Baptist's advice became, I mean, could you, I mean, right? They'd be the most popular tax collectors in town. You'd try to find one of them, right? Are you a Christian? No? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to go down the street to the guy. Because, I mean, think about it. It's almost like a mechanic, right? It's like finding a, a, an honest mechanic, right? You hate going to the mechanic, right? Because your car's broken, right? You know that something's wrong, but... But what if you found a mechanic that you could really trust? Where you walk in and, you, you know, all of a sudden the filibustering carbodogonum is broken. You know, and that's 800 bucks. Sorry. You know, and, oh, we threw the part away. Sorry, we can't give it to you. But we replaced it. Don't worry. I mean, you know, we die to find a mechanic that we can trust, right? A mechanic who, would, who wouldn't fleece us like this. I mean, become the most popular mechanics in the city, well, in the same way, I think, I mean, this is this whole idea of restoring, of bringing restoration, redemption to the workplace. That Zacchaeus, through Jesus' power and strength, is actually transforming his work. He's becoming a blessing to others in his work. And it's interesting because verse 10, when, when Jesus says he came to seek and save the lost, this word lost has a kind of a wide range. You could also translate this word um, that Jesus came to seek and save what's been ruined or destroyed. So it could be lost in terms of lost and ruin. And I think that really expands our minds in terms of what Jesus is coming to do, what his larger purpose is. Jesus has come not just to save individual hearts or lives that have been ruined or destroyed by sin, But this destruction that we experience affects everything, right? It affects our city. It affects our workplaces. And Jesus has come to seek and to save even that. He's coming to save and extend his saving power to overcome the greed and the corruption that exists in the workplace, to overcome the selfishness, the oppression that exists in work, in government, the arrogance in work, And what's amazing is that when Jesus comes, he doesn't just beat us over the head and make us feel guilty. He gives us this joy that swallows up that loneliness. You know, the way that he does it is by saying, you know what? The stuff you're pursuing when you practice crooked work, it's not making you happy. This will make you happy. Experience the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of peace with me, and it'll transform the way you do your work. And so you ask, what needs to be restored in your work, in your job, in your company? What needs to be restored? You know, that's what this, uh, this handout's getting at, this bulletin insert. We want to know about this. The Faith and Work Ministry wants to continue to provide programs, training, instruction to help you bring this, re- this restoration about, this redemption of your workplace. What needs the power of Jesus in your work? What needs his grace? What needs God's wisdom to fix the things that are broken? I mean, this is what we're aiming for. Jesus comes to bless you so that you can then turn around and bless the city. 
Jesus enters into the darkest city, into the darkest profession, into the darkest job in that profession, into the darkest heart that's working there. And he does that so that you'll know he'll enter into you. And when he does that, he then says, now go. Now go. He says this in John 20, verse 21. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. I send you into the darkness, wherever it is. I send you in. I don't tell you to come out of your workplace. I send you into your workplace and bring this healing and restoration. Philip Onshoots, who became, um, he was a pretty wealthy guy, and uh, he has done, um, I guess he started Walden Media that did the Chronicles of Narnia movies, that's done um, William Wilberforce, uh, Amazing Grace, that movie, some other movies. He said this, he said, I decided to stop cursing the darkness in Hollywood and instead do something about it by getting into the film business. (laughs) That's it. I decided to stop throwing rocks at everybody else, roll up my sleeves, and go to work by sharing the love of Jesus in the workplace. In the workplace. Philip Schaff, historian, theologian, um, he wrote this. Religion is not a single separate sphere of human life. It takes hold of a person. It goes into the center of his personal being to carry light into his understanding, holiness into his will, and heaven into his heart and over his whole inward and outward life. No form of existence can withstand the renovating power of God's spirit. The whole creation aims toward restoration. The view where Christianity is made to consist in opposition to the natural life or in flight from the world is contrary to the spirit and power of the gospel and false to its design. Christianity is the redemption and renovation of the world. It must make all things new. That's what God is calling us to be about. Dr. Seuss says the exact same thing in a much shorter way. In the book, The Lorax, this quote is actually in the San Diego, or in the, yeah, in the San Diego Zoo on the wall as you leave. Listen to this. It says the same thing. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And so we think about this. How, how, can we, how can we care an awful lot? The whole point of this sermon series is that you would enter into your work and you would image God. Okay? We've talked about sort of that fifth level of redeeming being a redeemer in the workplace. Well, that fourth level says image God as restorer. We see God's work restoring people on display here. And there are companies and jobs that reflect God as this restorer. Work is the way that we image God. So companies that fix things that are broken, right? I mean, you can almost do this yourselves. Doctors fix things that are broken. Auto insurance fixes things that are broken. Right, mechanics, like we've talked about already, recycling, social workers, 
all these companies, all these jobs reflect God as restorer, that God's desire is to make all things new. And so he inspires us to work in ways that bring about the restoration. Then jobs within companies, customer service, right? Fixes stuff that's broken, technical support, maintenance, mediators. Anytime you bring reconciliation in your work between any two people, you are imaging God as a restorer. And I think when we think about this, when we think about these connections, this helps us to become what I'm calling work positive. You know, at Harbor, we talk about being city positive, right? That we have hope for the city, that we have a redemptive view of the city. We don't spend time throwing rocks at the city, but we want to roll up our sleeves and serve, right? Well, I think we have to have the same attitude in terms of work. We want to be work positive because when we think about this, these connections then help us to see God's intention for the world, okay? Do you know how the Bible ends? Do you know how it ends? How all of God's purposes, where they all head, what, what's the end result of all of God's work in the world? In Revelation 21 and 22, it says at the end of the Bible that the, the goal that all of God's restoring work is heading toward a perfectly restored city in a perfectly restored earth. That's what God is aiming for. And every one of our jobs, I think, in different ways reflects that purpose. When you provide a service or a good to help fix things that are broken in the city, you are anticipating what God is going to do with the entire world. Our efforts to restore, to bring restoration through our work in San Diego is anticipating what God is going to do to restore the whole earth. Here's an amazing quote. This vision in Revelation 21 and 22 of a new heaven and earth is not to be interpreted as only future. Rather, what is to be absolutely and completely true in eternity is definitely and progressively true now. Our enjoyment of our eternal inheritance will be a continuation and a perfection of what we experience in the church in this life. We're not simply to look forward to the blessings of Revelation 21 in an eternity to come, but to enjoy them and rejoice in them and extend them here and now. This is the vision. And what this does, this makes the church, this makes you in the workplace like the trailer for a coming movie. Okay? We're sitting here in a theater. You watch trailers, right? You, you get to watch a movie trailer, a two or three minute sort of anticipation, a foretaste, uh, a teaser for this longer movie, for this greater story that's yet to come. That's what we are. That's what you are. You're the actors in the coming movie in the movie that's coming in eternity. And God wants us to live and to work in ways where people will see us and go, oh, hey, that's, that's that person who's, <laughs> that's the star, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw somebody famous, right? You're like, oh, hey, 
That the last time for me it was Pete Carroll in Coronado. That's Pete Carroll. He's the coach. I've seen him before. He's the, you know he's the coach of USC football. Oh my goodness! Like I'm, I'm looking at him, right? I mean, that's the that's the call for us, is that we're to live and to work. We're to bring into the workplace a lifestyle that people will look at us and go, "Gosh, you know what? When I think about what I want the world to become, you're one of the actors in that movie." the way you conduct yourself, the work that you do, the attitude that you have, the work that you perform and the reasons why you perform it. Boy, if there's work in the new heavens and earth, I think it'll be done like that. So that's our call. We're to be the movie trailer. We're to be the movie trailer to foretaste the end of the story in the new heavens and earth. And you can't do this on your own. Okay, remember... Point three is the call to go do this. Point two, remember, is that Jesus is the one who restores us first. The only way you can do this is if you experience the transforming power of Jesus, just like Zacchaeus. And so if you don't know him, this is the joy. You get to be one of these actors. You get to be one of the people that plays a part in this greater role. That's the call that we have. You come to him. Come and trust in him, and he'll put you in the play. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this vision, this image that we can be a part of you fixing the things that are broken in the world, that our work can be transforming, that our work can make the world now the way it will be in small ways in the future. God, help us. Help us to be able to live this out. Help us to experience the radical freedom that comes when you deal with the convictions of our hearts when you restore us into a relationship with yourself, that we be able to live that out in our workplace. God, help us to bring heaven to work. Help us to restore heaven on earth by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.